0: Hey, listeners. This is uh, this is Martin with the Second Spin podcast. So we're actually kicking off the uh, official podcast. This is, I guess, the first episode of um, actual content. So you may have listened to the episode I recorded with uh, New England Ben that sort of outlined how the show was going to go, and we're actually getting going. So um, today, and hopefully in the future, I'm actually joined by uh, by a friend of mine and a co-host um, who hopefully will be recording, you know, some or many of these episodes with me. Um, so, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Martin.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. So, um, I'm in uh, in Maryland, and uh, and Mike's actually in Colorado. Um, we've met through uh, through the whole vintage bike scene, and uh, actually got together at a couple of uh, vintage uh, bike rallies out in California, um, and have been uh, sort of fast fast friends um, in and out of the bike world. So, um, I asked Mike to join because I figured it'd be a he's a wealth of knowledge, and I figured it'd be a a, a cool. Um, a cool counterpoint to some of the knowledge that I have and uh, and may make for some interesting conversation. So um, I, I've kind of talked about myself in the past, so I'll, I'll give Mike a chance to kind of tell tell you guys, um, you know, what his story is, what his background is, and what he hopes to bring to this. And then we'll kind of get into what we're going to talk about.
1: Cool, man. Thanks. I uh, My name is Mike Wilk. I live in Durango, Colorado, uh, lifelong mountain bike rider. I grew up in Uh, New England in the late 80s and early 90s uh, started mountain biking around the summer of 90 and I've been riding seriously ever since Uh, moved out to Colorado to race bikes here in Durango and did the professional mountain bike race thing for a little while and then right around 2002, 2003 I kind of you know life took a turn and got me a real job and some responsibility and um, you know just kind of uh, took a back seat, you know, bike racing took a little back seat, and uh, you know, I started looking at some some disposable income. Uh, around 2006, I uh, was asked to restore uh, my first vintage mountain bike, which was a 1996 Proflex 856, um, which was a, a pile of a bike. That's that's you know, that's a subjective opinion, but it was a it was a pretty exciting project because it kind of got me introduced to the world of researching online learning about where to find parts and how you know these things work because i used to race for Proflex back in the day and um i knew a lot about the bike but i I knew little about how to actually work on it um so that kind of was the rabbit hole i went down and when i got done um building this bike i rode it and i was i was just this thing is a, a, a complete waste of time riding it but man i was like that was a real fun time researching the internet, you know, learning about how to put this thing back together with period correct parts. So, you know, I got my hands on my old uh, Kona that I, you know, had owned as a kid. And I, I started building that back um, up as I, as I had had it when I was a kid, you know, and I, and I realized, you know, it's a lot of fun. Like the same exact bike. Same exact bike. Oh,
0: yeah. well. And yeah.
1: then I realized, well, why would I want to put STX on it when I could put XTR? You know, now that I've got, you know, a little bit of disposable income. So that's kind of what I did. And that led me to places like MTBR, vintage, Ret- R- vintage Retro Classic Forum, which was kind of the first real, you know, US-based gathering spot for vintage collectors, vintage enthusiasts. And there were other places for sure, like Fat Chance Community Owners Group, retro bike was a uk-based place but it really the the vintage movement that i was involved in kind of grew out of the you know mtbr um vintage forum and that's where i met martin and a lot of the people that kind of helped me along the way and and that was about 15 years ago and and since then i've acquired knowledge about old (laughs) bikes that no one should ever have um and bikes and bikes and bike racers and um i mean i've got a i've got a mountain bike action from May of 1988 in my lap right now, if that can tell you anything about (laughs) what what I do with my spare time. So uh, I've I've owned about 50 bikes, you know, in the past 15 years, just kind of bikes that have come and gone. I have a small collection. Um, By no means am I a a collector, um, but I guess I like to collect. So uh, that's kind of my background. Um, Martin, what are we going to talk about today? I think the
0: the, the idea we're going to take with the show is to... um occasionally do like, have a deep dive on, on a topic, uh, whether it's a, you know, a bike brand or a specific bike culture or you know some, some particular aspect of vintage mountain bikes, right? I think for the most part, we're going to kind of stay in that 80s and, and 90s zone, at least for the beginning. Um, and then from time to time, we'll do these sort of series of shorter episodes. So instead of talking about suspension for an hour, maybe we'll kind of break it down into 15, 20-minute uh, segments about... You know, maybe some chunk of time or uh, what I've kind of called like the blooper reel of, <laughs> of, you know, really wacky things that happened with suspension before we got the kind of stuff that we have today, you know, of working suspension forks and rear shocks. Um, so, we'll try to um, have some guests come on board every now and then. We've got a few folks lined up, actually. That'll be pretty exciting. But I think for starters, um, I think the idea we had was just to kind of kick it off with suspension. Uh, I mean, there's just a ton to unfold there. Between front suspension and rear suspension, and kind of go back in time into the late '80s and uh, kind of do a quick run at sort of what happened in suspension. So without maybe spending any time on you know Rock Shock or, or Manitou, but just kind of walk through what was going on in those early
1: times. Um, sure, and we're and, the, and and we're looking at this you know through the context of comparing mountain bike suspension. Um, you know, vintage mountain bike suspension, you know, to vintage mountain bike suspension. We're not comparing this to how a fork should work, you know, compared to the forks today. You know, I think that's an unfair comparison that a lot of people make. I think we got it on like the Facebook groups this weekend where, you know, someone posted a picture of rock shocks and it was like, that fork was terrible. And objectively, you're wrong. I mean, it was, it wasn't terrible. It was amazing. But yeah, if you look at it, you know, if you look at it compared to a you know a Fox thirty six, yeah, it's not a very good fork, and it didn't perform as well. But you know, you have to remember what we were dealing with thirty years ago. So just a little disclaimer, and 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 yeah. we understand, Martin, and I understand that 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 you know bikes are a, primarily a visual medium to appreciate and to absorb over the internet. So we're going to do our best to kind of you know. M- give you the, give you an idea of what we're talking about without actually having, you know, visuals. Cause it's a podcast, you know, you're not, you're not watching us yet, but you're just listening to us. So just a, just a food for thought.
0: Yeah. Good point. And, uh, and on that note, I think what we'll do is, um, coordinate with, with my Instagram account and then the, the mountain bike radio Instagram account to maybe drop, um, a couple photos. So at the same time that the episode hits or drops, we'll try to load a few pictures of, of a few things that we maybe talked about. So people have a, an idea of, you know, what, what was that Gervin Frexton that they talked about, or, you know, I really want to check out that suspension hub. Um, so we'll try to do that. Um, and again, uh, we'll, we'll put all that stuff at the end, but, um, you can always follow my Instagram at second spin. And then of course, the mountain bike radio, um, Instagram. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, the way I was thinking about this is, uh, you know, early on when, when mountain bikes first kind of came about, right? So we'll get into the whole history of mountain biking in another time. But the first, you know, maybe 10 years or so, there really was no suspension. And ironically, rear suspension actually hit the market first with bikes like the the, the Brian Skinner's Descender um, and some of the, the handlebars. The, the Se Shocker. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So actually, the first bikes had rear suspension only and and no front suspension
1: whatsoever, which I, and they they had a lot of suspension. I mean, (laughs) one thing I was reading about today, as I was pouring over my issues of mountain bike action, like the, the, the Skinner frame, which, you know, was a, it was ghastly. (laughs) Like if you look at it, I mean, it was basically, you know, just a huge oil damper and, and an air strut, but it had like four or five inches of travel, rear travel yep it it had a rigid fork but it had you know four or five inches of rear travel so you know take take that to mind when you're you know you're thinking about that
0: yeah and they really kind of went at it from a for a motorcycle suspension where you had just this big swing arm with one pivot essentially right i mean there was just a pivot at the bottom bracket if you can imagine you've got the front triangle of the bike and then no seat stay and just a chain stay with a vertical damper um just literally taken out of a motorcycle or for all I know, just a screen door, um, you know, connected up <laughs> yeah. to the seat tube. I mean, that was the, the early, the earliest attempt. Uh, it wasn't until what 89, right. That, uh, that, uh, Paul Turner and Doug Bradbury kind of parallel past,
1: um, actually. Okay. I, I've, I've got, you know, I, I've got a really handy issue of mountain action from, from, um, May of 1988. Or my, I'm sorry, May of 1989, where they talk about the prototype Rock Shock, and you know Paul Turner was a he was a motorcycle guy, and he came to the mountain bike world. Um, I'm not sure how, but it was basically a, a, a miniature motorcycle fork, and this so, you know mountain bike action had had the fork all winter. So this was this was built in probably late summer fall of 1988 is when Paul Turner came up with Paul Turner and Keith Bontrager built the first rock shocks and it had a, had a Bontrager crown um, and it was basically just a small motorcycle fork, an air sprung oil damped fork. um, The most basic of things that was made out of, you know, aluminum sliders and, and steel, lowers.
0: And uh, so for those of you that aren't familiar with the the work Keith Bontrager did, Keith actually early on, you know, nowadays, when you look at a a mountain bike that has a rigid fork, you have a unit, you know, a unicrown fork, right? That didn't exist. That kind of tubing didn't exist. So the earliest rigid mountain bike forks actually had, um, in some cases, sort of these these biplane uh, flat crowns with just rigid fork legs welded onto them. Um, and before people came up with, uh, with the Unicrown bent tube, right? Like you, like you're familiar with most of the mountain bike forks that, uh, rigid forks that came about, Keith Bontrager actually had a segmented rigid fork. So there was a, a crown with a, with a split down the middle with holes on both ends and one in the middle for the steer. And these, you know, straight blade, um, uh, legs essentially would bolt into that. So that's how they built early rigid forks. And then they took that design and then essentially put compressible struts. In the place of the rigid portions, right? So, so it was a three. And they actually say
1: that in this article that they enjoy the fact they can swap out (laughs) their composite fork, their Bontrager composite rigid fork, with their Rockshox fork leg really easily. But it took them like like, there's an actual comment like it took them a while to figure out how to learn how the brakes were going to slide up and down with the wheel. Like that was a concern when they first got the fork. Yeah. And that,
0: (laughs) uh, that fork was wrapped around, uh, or sorry, wrapped around was, was uh, put on the, the the famous Kestrel Nitro, right? That was one of like the first. Well,
1: I don't know. So I was going to throw that back to you because I think you owned a Nitro,
0: right? No, I never, I never had a Nitro. I've had a couple MXZs, but I've never even seen Mm. the Nitro. Um, Okay.
1: So here we go. I've got mountain bike action, May, 1988. It's got the picture of the Kestrel Nitro on the cover with a fork, which looks a lot like a RockShox, but it says, you know, the, the, the branding on it is cycle suspension. Now, the Nitro was designed by Keith Montrigger and Paul Turner, so one can reasonably assume that this was an early version of, of the RockShox before he actually had the RockShox name. But, um, yeah, the earliest reference I can find to, you know, a production mountain bike that had functional rear and front suspension Besides, you know, some of the one-offs like a Bushido or a, you know, Mm. you know, Shocker or a Brink is the Kestrel Nitro, which actually never made it into production.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was going to, but then it never did. And and uh, and listeners, if you have a chance, definitely Google Kestrel Nitro, and then you know, think back to a time when you know most bikes were a double diamond with thin steel tubing, and then imagine seeing that bike. I mean, it just
1: yeah. I mean, this bike was made of carbon carbon fiber in, in probably 1987. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's carbon fiber like, you know, it was actually probably fiberglass. But, you know, it was, you know, this is a very, very radical bike that was way beyond its time. I mean, it had it had a, a shock that was buried in what would be considered the seat tube, only the seat tube was actually just part of the main, you know, the top tube of the bike. I mean, not unlike um, a boulder, you know, where they buried the they buried yeah. the shock in the top tube. This mm-hmm. is like buried in what would be considered like the, the seat tube top tube junction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I which mean, is- in ni- this, this, this is, you know, pretty normal stuff by the mid nineties, but in 1987, this is, this is very forward thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just absolutely insane. And we'll, uh, I think we'll get into carbon fiber at some point and that merits, uh, you know, a deep discussion. And it's a, it's another article I'm actually working on for dirt rag and, I just, uh, before it, and you'll, you'll listeners, I'm sure will <laughs> you'll find, we end up going down these rabbit hole tangents because, you know, you'll talk about one thing and then you're like, Oh, early carbon fiber. And it, it's so hard to, I mean, you, it's so hard to contain the excitement that we have about some of this stuff. Um, but, uh, and I, and I actually had, I wrote an article recently about the, um, carbon frames onyx, which is an early, uh, Calfee bike and. I said this is one of the first true carbon fiber bikes, or one of one of. And and Brent Trimble quickly uh, chimed in on my website, you know, kind of uh, chastising me for saying no, 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 no. The the Kestrels were the first carbon bikes, and I guess the, all the prototypes he made for them were actually true carbon. And then it wasn't until they went into production that the uh, carbon content actually went down, and it was replaced with mostly fiberglass with. And I, I so I actually have a, ironically a Kestrel MXZ brochure on my desk because uh, oh, cool. I was researching for that article. And yeah, they had some sort of a funky, um, some funky other kind of composite material. But but so anyway, so so you had the Rockshock fork in '89, and you uh, know I remember you know going to bike shops and seeing this thing, and I was trying to actually pull up how much the the first thing how much it weighed.
1: It was it was um, they said that it, it would add a pound and a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's a very it's a very gray gray term. <laughs> but they said it was worth every every pound. Um I have an RS one and it's it's um it's two thousand grams.
0: Alright, excellent. Yeah. And so right around the, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm
1: sorry, yeah, it's actually like twenty two hundred, but I mean it's it's heavy. And it depends how long the steer is, right? Yeah, but it's I mean <laughs> like compared to like okay so if you took like a like a richie p21 which as you all know because you're all you know vintage mountain bike enthusiasts, that like you could build up a richie p21 to 21 pounds if you if that fork on a, on a richie p21 like a richie fork would probably weighed 630 to 50 grams based on the steer weight like literally the rock shock was like three times that like it was really heavy and so, I mean, that was everyone's main concern was like, hey, this thing is like going to put a boat anchor on the front of my bike and it's going to raise the front end of my bike like, you know, two degrees. Like, what's that going to do? It's going to, you know, and, and I think that's why the world was hesitant to adopt suspension for so long. I mean, it was, it was literally like the technology was there for like five years and it wasn't until they got enough exposure with world champions riding, um, you know, bike magazines raving about him to where people actually started bolting these on the front of their bike but i mean it was like everyone was afraid like oh you know i my my bike is gonna all of a sudden go from light to heavy and you know it's it was it, it, it's understandable to think when when back in the day pe- pedaling a you know a 22 to 23 pound rigid bike you know all of a sudden you're pedaling a 26 pound rigid bike or a, you know suspended bike like that's a that's a big difference you know, and, and it wasn't until people realized, like, the benefits of suspension, you know, how it could really increase, like, not only your downhill speed, but your climbing speed that, you know, people were like, okay, this is something I'm willing to, to understand.
0: Yeah, it was definitely slow. Um, I mean, even just from a manufacturer perspective, right? I mean, it's one thing for people to buy aftermarket suspension forks and put them on their bike. That's yeah. one kind of measure of adoption. But then actually seeing bike specced with suspension forks that that took another couple years i mean i remember
1: a long time like yeah right again like probably you know five years i mean this this rock shock was available you know in 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 early 1990 like in in you know 1998 like you couldn't buy one it was prototype but like in 1990 you could could buy a rock shock but like you look at you know the the world champion like the uci worlds at purgatory in 1990 in, in september no, there were very few people riding them. And in fact, it was it was crazy that Ned Overend put one on the front of his bike t- to win the cross-country race. It was like, whoa, you know, this is, this is wild. And, and everyone... Old, uh, every, well, I mean, everyone understood that, you know, it was the benefits of downhill, but no one understood yeah, right, why right. you would want one for a cross-country bike. You know, it's got to go uphill. But I, th- I think Ned realizing that he needed every... Every benefit he could get on the downhill to keep up with Tomac was like, well, I, I have to, you know, I have no choice. Like Tomac's got one, I gotta have one,
0: right? And then Furtado, famously, right, won the the women's well, country I mean, with a Manitou.
1: You and I understand, you know, we we know enough about um, history to understand that Julie Furtado, you know, a fantastic athlete and an amazing person, really didn't understand the bikes that she was riding. She just came, she just rode whatever they gave her, yeah. And they were I mean, like, hey, here's a suspension fork. Okay, cool. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that today happening? Like, Hey, by the way, we're going
0: to put this thing on your bike. I feel like people are, I mean, and and I'm not as, you know, dialed into the racing scene, but it it feels like when you, you know, look at, watch interviews or, you know, see people posting, you know, the, the elite racers are, are quite in tune with their bikes and, you know, comment on, you know, minor changes in geometry. Whereas you can just imagine, you know, the women's elite world cup champion, not even realizing really that like her entire component group was switched the night before right and never mind like oh i have a suspension fork now it's just it's crazy how how different things were back then and you know that just can you imagine things like that happening
1: well it was such it was such a fast forward environment i mean no one no one knew what was going to work and what didn't what wasn't going to work so it was like try this you know you know it's it's working it's not working move on to the next on to the next on to the next and that was the way it was for like you know six years and that's why i think A lot of people gravitate towards that period of mountain biking because it was such a a period of, like, you know, we're trying this, it's not going to work, you know, and you have all these crazy ideas. Some of them were amazing, some of them were absolutely terrible. But, you know, every issue of mountain bike action or, or whatever was like, hey, this is the next newest thing. And it was like you were flipping through those things, you know, on your you'd put the pictures up on your locker in school and you're like, ah, I really want to, you know, I can't wait to get a Halsen inversion because it's upside down. You know <laughs> why? I have no idea why, but like, it's cool. Cause it's in a magazine. Like that's why people gravitate towards that period of mountain biking, because it was so much going on that it was out of control. I mean, people were willing to try anything just to catch the eye of the consumer. And you know, you, you know, a lot of dangerous stuff came, came about it, but a lot of really cool mm. stuff. And I think like, you got to give credit to Paul Turner. Like, I mean, he he really he really made it work, and he was the first person. I mean, I, I give credit to to Bradbury; he was there too, um, but he he went about it a different way, and was you know he was probably six months later than Paul Turner, but you know, same thing like a fork that works that was light enough to convince the people that it was cross country worthy because this was still a cross country world. I mean, there were downhill, there were trials riders, but in the end, like all the money was going to, to cross-country racing.
0: Well, and the same people rode the same bike in downhill and cross-country. So although sure, you know, the races were different, the bikes were actually literally the same. So just to sort of recap, so the, so just so, you know, the listeners are, are with us, right? So the Rockshock RS1 came out, what, 88, 89, and it was actually an air-sprung oil-damped fork, right? So that same technology, essentially, that, that we have today, just not executed as well, right? I mean, there's limitations in in manufacturing and technology, but that that's basically what it was. Um, you would pump it up with a little uh, syringe with a, um, a dial on no, it. No, and- that's,
1: that's not true. Let me, I don't, and I, and I don't mean to, you know, yeah. back you up, but like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, flipping through these pages here and, and the, in the mountain bike action test crew, you know, they, did we have any problems with the rock shocks? Well, yes, we did. The plastic caps keep coming off the top of the fork and we couldn't, you know, these are the plastic caps that, Protected the Schrader valves. They
0: had a Schrader valve. The first, on the,
1: on the, prototype? the first RockShock had a Schrader valve. There's a picture of it. <laughs> Is the one that you have? Have a? I thought that the, even. No, my my RS one has it has a has yeah. needle valve. Has okay. a, you know, like you pump up, you know, like what what you would use to pump yep. up a basketball. Yeah, in. I think the production. But, yeah, that, like that, that prototype. That prototype rock shot could That's
0: crazy. But so, so anyway, if you had one, so I, I didn't know that. But if you had a production one, you would be, the bike would come with a little syringe, like literally yep. like a medical syringe that then had the end of it spliced with a uh, a little pressure gauge that, I don't know, went up to like what, mm-hmm. 75, 80 psi.
1: I, I could not tell you it, what my RS1 is pumped I up. I bet that. if I
0: ran to my toolbox, I could pull one up. And then at the end, it had like a, <laughs> you know, a, a flexible hose and you would screw in a replaceable. Yeah, like a volleyball or basketball needle valve to it, and and that's what you got. Yep. And I think the fork was sort of known for what being kind of a big hit fork, right? It was. It didn't really take the little stuff, right? It, it would. It, it had two inches of travel, which at the
1: time was yeah, and, th- and that was enough. And and they claimed that it had, you know, the fork had a, a quote unquote damper that sensed bumps, so it would be quote unquote locked out when you were climbing, but it would it would only <laughs> Start to work when it hit a rock or whatever, which is absurd. But it's just funny how yeah, how that that marketing span. It was like, okay, that yeah. sounds amazing. It's amazing we can think of this in 1989.
0: But you know. so the other major fork on the market was Doug Bradbury's Manitou, and this is before Answer Manitou and the Manitou that everybody knows today as a part of Hayes and and that fork was actually much lighter. Paint,
1: um, because I know, like you're you're a big Bradbury aficionado. Like, paint the picture for everybody of of Doug Bradbury making his first suspension fork. Like, yeah,
0: so Doug, kind of like Paul Turner, came out of the uh, the motorcycle world. Only he um, he was more involved with motorcycle trials. Um, so, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar, motorcycle trials is literally just like jumping over boulders and rocks, but on a on a on a motorcycle. And so his approach to building mountain bikes and um, uh, and eventually i think the forks came out of that background so we'll talk about his bikes i'm sure at some point but you know early aluminum bikes very short chain stays um, 16 and a half inches um, even back then um and then he yeah also just he really was, wanted
1: he was like in a garage in you know the mountains west of Colorado springs just right. literally like his his garage like hand machining aluminum yeah, I mean, yeah, just on a, on a band the, the, saw and a lid. The stuff that he came up with, literally, like you know, with you know, just his hands was yeah. was incredible. I mean, the guy really deserves a lot of credit of of being an amazing craftsman with with metal and technology and just having an idea of how how things should work. You know, Paul mm-hmm. Turner, like. We understand there's a there's a there's a need for mountain bike suspension, so I'm going to make a suspension fork, but I'm basically going to scale down, you know, a, a motorcycle fork to to fill that need. Whereas Doug Bradbury was like, you know, a lot like Charlie Cunningham, where he was like, I'm going to figure out not only to fill this need, but I'm going to figure out how it should work, because, you know, there's a lot better ways of doing it than, you know, and and I, I think that first Manitou fork was really cool.
0: Yeah. And and I think the other part to point out is so Paul Turner, prior to making a suspension fork for bikes, he had worked at Honda. And I think he had access to a lot more technology than Doug did. But I don't know that um, he had a lot of exposure to mountain biking. I think he did uh, like triathlon and some other sports, whereas Doug kind of went into mountain biking, and he started building bikes before he built a suspension fork. So he, you know, it was kind of a natural thing. And I remember talking to him about this at one point, and he said, you know from the first moment that he was into it he said we we need a suspension fork but i just think you know maybe it took him some time to kind of get his legs under him and actually start building bikes before he had a chance to sort of crack that nut um but his early forks um you know similar to the to the relationship that Paul Turner had with um with Keith Bontrager where he took Keith's sort of existing design, and then just replaced rigid legs with um, with ones that had um, uh, suspension travel. Doug also made his own segmented forks. So again, you had a crown, um, a one piece aluminum crown that then had legs bolted into it. Um, and his early forks basically took the the lowers out, which were just you know forty one thirty steel, and he replaced them with with hand made. Um, basically, you had an, a steel tube that he just you know machined down on a lathe with a cap at the bottom um, and then a set of aluminum uh, stanchions that sort of or lowers that went over those stanchions and then he used um, just elastomer bumpers for for suspension right Um, explain
1: explain what elastomers are because it's (laughs)
0: Um, so yeah elastomer is sort of like rubber essentially and i I guess i don't actually know like the chemical composition of an elastomer. microcellular urethane ah
1: thank you (laughs) <laughs> and I am, and you're the engineer, dude, like you, you know, it's, Fair enough. it's, it's, it's rubber. <laughs> I'm just making it sound, sound more exciting. It's literally rubber, like just a, yeah, and like, a rubber, various... like a rubber donut, like my old ProFlex. It was literally just a rubber donut.
0: Yeah. and So they come in various durometers of so stiffness. So you could kind of adjust them a little bit. And I think the, the idea he had, if you kind of go back to the, to the argument that, that Shock made of, well, you could, you could sort of stiffen, you could take out your, rock shock legs and put in your your rigid fork legs the idea with the elastomer fork is that you could pull out the elastomers and if you needed a little more travel you'd put in some softer ones and i mean they were relatively easy to take out you know in all honesty i don't know that's the kind of thing you would do
1: i think that the theory was is that you could fine-tune the ride quality whereas a rock shock went up and down with the same kind of linear spring rate with the with the manitou it was you could change the hardness of the stack you know the stack of bumpers that was in this fork to mm-hmm. fine-tune how the fork was going to work for different um different types of hits so for example like if you wanted the fork to like absorb you know soft hits you know the chatter bumps or whatever like on a cross-country course before hitting like a big rock like you would put the softer bumpers at the bottom flip it around for a downhill race where like you're going to be hitting you know water bars and stuff like that that was i think the goal of of you know that design you know it was more more fine-tuned and you could preload it right you know by mm-hmm. cranking down on this on this stack from either the top or the bottom you know when i say stack it was literally like a skewer right like these you know i don't know how them i haven't opened up a Manitou one in years but you know, I know like a two or a three or a four fork would have a skewer with all these rubber bumpers on it and you could fine-tune the yeah. fork based on where the skew where the where the where the bumper sat within the skewer. I remember dudes doing this on bike rides. Like literally like a Manitou three, you know, which is about 93, 94, You could unscrew it from the top of the fork on a on a ride, pull out the stack and start switching around where your bumper sat based on like where the, the rest of the ride was going to go, <laughs> yeah, like, for the, for if the you had early, an hour of descending, you was like, okay, I'm going to switch these like hard ones to the bottom. <laughs> so, yeah, the earlier
0: fork was much harder because you actually had to take the lowers off to access the stack. That's right. So it's the you kind of do, thing you could maybe do before a ride or in between races, but not really, um, not really something you would do on, on the yeah. trail. I mean, yeah, you'd have to be very dedicated. So like a
1: Manitou original Manitou came with like a like a. 12-inch or 18-inch 5-millimeter, right? Yeah. And you needed to access the bolt that was at the bottom of this oh, fork man. to, like, get that, you know. And, and these, I mean, they were incredibly simple. Like, once you had them apart, it was like putting Legos together.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was just a couple little uh, Delrin um, bushings on the inside that basically kept the the, um, the stanchions sort of rigidly, you know, sl- kept him in, in sort of tight tolerance to the lowers. So you didn't have a ton of movement back and forth, but then there was just a simple rubber lip seal. And all of these things were essentially parts that he bought from somewhere else. Right. I mean, I mean obviously he, he fabricated the actual bigger components, but you know, everything else was just a standard, um, you know, rubber sleeve that, from some other you know component. I and-
1: couldn't, I couldn't tell you where, where else you would use MCU technology. I just, I don't think it was motorcycles. But maybe, yeah, I don't think so. Um, you know, that's a good question. I
0: never actually thought to to consider where that came from, other than um, you know just vibration damping, right? So you might use it like in you know um, isolating components that are in vibration in machinery, right? So they might use. I bet you was. I,
1: I bet you was like the aircraft industry. It know, might like, be. Yeah,
0: that's a good question. That, that's something I should ask them about. Um, uh, I never actually did. Specifically, say where he got them from, or ask him about that. I think he just sort of went for the simple component, right? Instead of having a spring, I guess the the MCU might have a little bit more damping because I mean, we can talk about and, and and at some point we'll we'll go off from from these two big guys. But you know, you had the Scott Unishock that just had a spring, right? So you had the Rock Shock on the one end with the very sophisticated, but I, I never quite liked the Rock Shock. I, I don't know, maybe I didn't ride hard enough. And then you had the Manitou, which had a kind of a nice all-around feel. I mean, you know, it wouldn't do much for you on very big hits, but it just kind of took the edge off most trails. That's kind of how I look at them. And then the fork that I actually had that I actually raced on as a kid back in the 90s was a Scott Unishock, which had literally just a spring in it. No damping. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was maybe a little little elastomer in there for a little bit of rebound damping, but not really. I mean, it was yeah. a spring. That literally, I mean, it kind of goes back to some of the like Schwinn, you know, Apple crate, you know, I I don't know all those bikes that well, but they, that's all they had was just a massive coil spring in some of those sort of like forward or four bar linkage forks they had or whatever it was. Um, That's, that's what, that's what Scott did. So, so I think what we'll come back and, you know, over, over time, talk a little more about the evolution of RockShock and Manitou and, you know, how those two companies, you know, really shape the market because initially that's. From a suspension fork perspective that's that's all there was, and you had you know other companies came along later, and we talked
1: to you know Mike mentioned the the the, the halson Helson inversion yeah I mean there's there's dozens and, and, and to, to, to martin's point, what what Shocks and manager did was was steer the industry in the direction of mountain bike suspension a real is a reality, and it will definitely improve your experience on the bike, you know regardless of the weight regardless of this you know how what it's going to do to the height of the front end of your bike because you know yeah i did it raised you know it raised the axle to crown like you know 30 to 40 you know millimeters but uh, once people got around that it was it changed it changed the direction of, of mountain bikes and it was you know that evolution was always going to happen you know based on based on need um but those two people they, they need to be credited with you know, changing, changing an industry really. Um, there were other, there were other innovators and I'm sure Martin, you know, is, is, you know, we can talk about it, but, um, there are, there are other adaptations of mountain bike suspension that were meant, it was, it was kind of a light footprint into suspension because, you know, the, the, the ideal was still that, you know, we want these bikes to be light as possible to go uphill as fast as possible on the cross country race course. So what were some other, you know, entries that were kind of a, what I would call a light footprint, not a, not bolting a fork onto the front of your bike, but you know, other ways of doing it.
0: Yes. I mean, ironically, I mean, there's actually, so there's a ton of stuff that people were trying back then that, you know, I had kind of, you know, for me, these are, these are really footnotes, right? I mean, most of the bikes that I play with today, I wouldn't even get anywhere near some of this stuff, but, when you and I started talking about this, it was it was just pretty remarkable, you know, flipping through old catalogs and, and things like that, and looking at the ways people tried to solve this problem. So, a couple notes I have: um, there was actually a company I didn't know about this until uh, just recently. I, I saw them on a uh, on a, uh, a YouTube video of Hans Rey's garage. There was actually a company that made suspension handlebars, and if you can picture this, I'll, I'll put a copy, a copy of, of a photo on the Instagram, but it was essentially a riser bar before there really were riser bars. And at at, at the point where the bar transitions from the lower section to the, to the, to the upper section, there was essentially like a thicker portion that again, had some kind of a rubber, um, rubber mount, or or maybe, you know, another set of elastomers that essentially allowed the bars to, to bend down. So, I mean, I don't think these things ever went into production. And besides that, that picture of the bar's, In Hans's garage, I can't find any information about these. Um, And then I'll look. I'll look up the name for them while we're while we're talking and bring it back. But I mean, can you imagine? You know, riding down a hill and just feeling your bars moving up and down on purpose. It just, oh my god. I mean, I I can't I I can't imagine. uh, You know, being asked to like test this. I mean, it's it's crazy. The the things that people thought about and actually implemented and had human beings out there testing this stuff. Um, it's just, it's just insane. Um, yeah. So then you brought up the, the suspension hub. You want to, you want to tell folks about that? One?
1: Well, I mean, you, you actually found a, a picture of it and sent it to me like three weeks ago, but I remember flipping through the pages of some magazine back in like probably 92, 93 and seeing an ad for a suspension hub and and what it was, it was a it was a hub, where just underneath the flan where the flange would would act, you know, would interface with the bearing. There was a, like a three millimeter elastomer, like a like a donut, I guess is you know to overuse that term. But there was a donut between the axle and the hub flange, and that was you know it was it was you know what was the name of that? You you, you sent it to me the other day. isolator. Isolator, yeah. the the thought of I mean, what would that would do to the front wheel in a corner <laughs> or under like hard braking or speed? It just it, it boggles my mind. Like but these I things just, went into production,
0: like unlike I, the I bar, don't, which I, I don't doubt found. it. The bar was called the bike stab, and I mean, what a what a name! Oh, God. <laughs> the handlebar was the bike stab suspension handlebar, which I don't think ever saw production. But the isolator hub, like you know, I googled that and I found them. Like you can you can pick them up on eBay. I mean, like they actually made that. I mean they they made that shit, and people wrote it. And I, I'd love to get my hands on one and just sort of just sort of see what it's like, but. I sort of feel like it probably had better place on a road bike to like take out some chatter on a long commute. But
1: yeah, that'd be real insane. fun. that would be real fun in a sprint. Let me tell you, when you're putting out <laughs> 1200 watts and your front wheel like moves three inches like to each direction, <laughs> it'd be really awesome.
0: Um, so we've got the bar, the hub, and I think those are one-offs. I mean, I don't think that was a that wasn't a trend. I just sort of think that they're just they're just hilarious footnotes on
1: the way people took this. You can't um, really talk about mountain bike suspension without without discussing the Girvin flex stem. I yeah, mean, it, it was it was a you know it was a I want to say it was a valiant effort because I mean ideally what you're trying to do is is to give people some relief without changing too much of the bike you know you're not bolting a a three pound fork onto the front end that costs four hundred dollars you're essentially swapping out a quill stem to where you know you still have the ability to move it up and down according to how much you know your back hurts um but it it allowed you know it it had a it had a, a hinge on the front of the stem that moved the the bar up and down that was uh, sprung and damped by a, you know, by a, by a, rubber bumper. And it was very simple. Um, Bob Gervin, I'm told is a, a very smart person who eventually went on to, um, design, um, for You're the famous com- ProFlex. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he, I don't know his direct involvement with the company off-road, but I know, I, I believe that off-road utilized a lot of his designs and, and I'm, I'm guessing you could probably say licensed them. So, um, You know, one of the first you know full suspension bikes I remember seeing, like out on the race course, was a was an off road. It was, you know, it was called the Off Road Proflex, or or you know a a Proflex by Off Road. So it had it had a flex stem, a rigid fork, and a rear end that was suspended by one of those um, MCU bumpers. And that was a very you know easy way to get you know into a suspended mountain bike, and and really, yeah. what this you know w- was it anywhere near the quality, um, in terms of you know how it was going to change your ride, but of, of a rock shucks or a to no. But what it looked like on the showroom floor to the the dentist or the doctor walking in with you know two thousand dollars in his cat in his pocket, like that probably like turned heads. And you know I saw a lot of those off roads on the trails in New England. Yeah. well and
0: cannondale did it too their full their first full suspension yep. which i actually have ironically it was the um, e s t right e s t right yep. and it had a um an oil damped um uh, with a oil damped rear shock with an actual uh, spring so it wasn't um not air sprung, um, a coil sprung, Um, and then it had the Gervin flex stem uh, with their massive um, aluminum pepperoni fork, and that was my oh, that oh, was God. my dream bike. That bike with the black front end with the splatter, and then the neon that green swing arm with the pink spring. That
1: fork was uh. so hard to ride. I mean, <laughs> like a Klein. Oh God! And and we can you and, know and and Martin has a whole you know a bunch of episodes planned out, and we can go down the rabbit hole of, of mountain bike rear suspension or, or you know, a suspension oh, man, frame. That's... But those, you know, what what ended up happening with those ProFlexes and those those nails is that the, the pivots were so high above the bottom bracket that you could literally feel the suspension working in your feet. Like, the pedal feedback was so bad. It was like, you'd be riding along and you'd feel like, are my, you know, are my pedals loose or are my, are my cleats loose? Like, You know what's going on, and it was just this is the feedback of the suspension because the pivot was so high, and and it was no, you know they just hadn't figured it out yet, and um, you know, and the the term I think that they refer to it as was biopacing, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's another that's a podcast for another day, but um, you know, there's there's other forks that you know deserve deserve discussion because you have the Well, I'll stay on the stem topic though because I think it's actually interesting given the
0: you know, what we have today with rock introducing a suspension stem again, but for road bikes, right. Um, it's more of a gravel type, you know, application, oh, but yeah, you know, um, quick comment I wanted to make about a, a, the flex stem was the interesting thing about it is that unlike a fork, which allowed the, you know, the, the bike to move sort of linearly up and down the flex stem because the the, st- the whole stem pivoted right so you had the if you imagine a classic stem where you have the the quill portion right that again this is b- right. before threadless that went into the fork right and then you had the actual you know horizontal or usually with some rise portion uh the the neck i guess whatever that went away from the quill that's where the pivot was so the stem would pivot you down so the motion of it i thought was actually kind of granted it was very small but it was sort of unsettling, because it wouldn't, you wouldn't actually be going up and down, you'd be going down and forward, which I always thought was weird. And so then the Allsup flex stem came out, which this one, listeners, you'd have to go and check out um, Allsup, um, either Google it, or, or again, check it on our Instagram. Um, it was actually a, a four bar, or two bar, uh, four link, or four pivot, a parallelogram that the actual stem kind of mimicked the motion of suspension. Um, and that was actually not a very bad product, all things considered. And I think...
1: Uh, it was a lot more plush than a Flextap. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually offered, like, a an inch or more of travel. And and Frischi used that on his Richies, right? It actually won,
0: like, world championships, I think, with that stem on there.
1: Well, you... Frischi only won one world championship, and that was because Jerome Chiotti got busted for doping. Ah. 96.
0: Alright, did he have the all-sum? Awesome? <laughs>
1: no but no he won he won a a shit ton of of you know of world cups using an all-stop stem and and and, yeah to your point it was you know that was a product that was actually well thought out it had a damper yep later ones did. yeah yeah later ones did so you know it was it was sprung with a with a you know linear spring and it had had a damper and it really did take the edge off Mm -hmm. i mean you know heaven forbid you wanted to stand up and hammer because (laughs) you were basically just diving (laughs) towards the front end of your bike. So Joe Breeze actually showed up to, you know, the Keysville classic with, with one of his all stop bikes like three years ago. Yeah. And you know, he rode he rode you know, he couple, you know, a couple laps with us and did the race with, um, with the Beamer, the Beamer, the the Breezer Beamer, you know, with the all stop stem, and, and the, beam. The, soft-ride the soft-ride beam, you know, and, and he, you know, I remember him like, what, you know, what were your, what are your true thoughts on that? And he was like, it worked, you know, I mean, if you, for cross-country application, you know, it, it worked and, and to, to their credit, you know, it was a, it was a good product and it wasn't expensive and it wasn't heavy. Yep. 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 And so the,
0: the, the last thing I have as a, as another means that people did suspension, um, Before we get back to other forks is, you know, the, and I think you can't talk about vintage mountain bikes without mentioning the Tioga disc wheel, right? Which, which, uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, um, again, Google the, uh, Tioga disc drive and disc with a K, uh, Explain exactly. Yeah, this thing is amazing. I mean, it's one of the most coveted coveted pieces of uh, a vintage mountain bike tech. But um, essentially, it's a rear wheel. Um, but instead of lacing the wheel with, uh, with spokes, you get these two sheets of Kevlar um, fiber that's strung kind of like a cat's cradle. Um, essentially connecting the points on the hub with the, with the area or the the points where the spokes with the nipples would actually be on the rim that actually had these custom little uh, um, rings that, that thread into where the nipples are. And essentially you take these two, um, two halves, you attach them to the hubs in the middle with a, with a standard hub, any hub would work. Um, And then. It had
1: to be 36 hole for the first, the first wheels. You're right.
0: You're right. Um, so you'd bolt it to the hub with these custom adapters, and then the outsides would be uh, attached using these, these rings that would essentially go in where the nipples are. And you had a left half and a right half, and it would take care of the dish. Um, and then that was what your reel was. Um, and these Kevlar strings were sandwiched between um, initially kind of a bluish, um, sort of a plastic, I mean, mylar, if you're familiar with that term, um, but essentially just a, a plastic sheet that was uh, vacuum formed over those Kevlar strings, so they sent essentially- the only
1: real reason to protect like you know sticks and rocks getting in there.
0: Yep, yeah, and arrow, <laughs> an arrow. <laughs> oh
1: God, um, for sure. But the but basically the
0: wheel had you wouldn't call it travel, but you would say compliance. Um, and I've I've ridden you actually probably have a lot more miles on a, on a disc than I do, um, but I've ridden one a little bit, and it definitely there's there's something there beyond just the amazing sound that the wheel makes when it goes down.
1: But not I mean, only does it have like, you know, you know, compliance to protect the rider from permits. It had lateral compliance to it. It would yeah. you could probably get like an inch out of inch out of that thing either way under, under hard load. Um, yeah. yeah travel mean, was
0: measured in two dimensions.
1: Um, oh God. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was a really cool product and, A lot of really famous people raced them and that's, you know, and, and they sounded amazing. I mean, just rolling down the trail with, you know, a hollow ish wheel, you know, it was just, it was so loud and, and so cool, but it, man, it was, they were real. I mean, it was minus six pounds, like, and I I own two, (laughs) my blue one is six pounds. <laughs> and, and I think
0: it was basically hundred dollars per pound, right? I mean, weren't they about six hundred dollars? I think so. It yeah. was insane. I mean, I mean it,
1: and, yeah. And everyone, and, and, and no, a lot of people here in here in this podcast will here, have heard the stories. of Tomac would break one, you know, all the time, and he would only he would only go what forty five hours, yeah, thirty five hours
0: track. If you if you know, I've seen a few of his old wheels, um, and they actually keep track much like you know a car racer you know keeps the number records the numbers of laps and, and cycles into their tires they did yeah. that for his wheels so if if it was a certain amount they'd say no this wheel's toast but you know a guy at
1: that level could afford to have a trailer and when the those. and when that wheel was toast it was it was done like it would explode oh, like yeah. you have know a normal spoke failures. wheel would would come out you know you'd break a spoke or come out of true or you know you you'd, you'd crack a rim this thing literally the hub would rip out of of the wheel <laughs> yeah. like i mean it was like okay ride ride over or race over you know
0: yeah i mean catastrophic explosion i mean it, it was just insane
1: but man um, they were cool i mean it's it's literally like you know top 5 coolest things you can put on your bike to make it you know a vintage mountain bike to to make it you know really cool yeah and they're you know they're getting really really hard to find i mean i think well like 15 years ago you could you could find one if you were if you were hungry enough and you had the money, like you could go buy one. But now it's, I mean, you're looking at a you're looking at a grant
0: uh-huh. for
1: a, for a rideable one.
0: Yeah, the last new one I think went for twenty five hundred dollars. I mean, that's yeah. like that's a set of Envies, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, just and that's not even a wheel. That's just that's just the
1: tension disc. You still need a hub and a rim. Um, I, I broke I broke my 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 clear one that did this drive pro. Yeah. Um last fall. And I was like, that's it. That was the last rideable tension Stabby. disc that I have. Yeah. I, I don't have a rideable tension disc right now. It's really frustrating. I've got two that just sit there and look at me like, haha, we're broken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Here's your child's college fund. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I've got one I'm hanging on to, but uh I have no no idea what four two twenty, I have no reason to uh, to ride those. No. But so so that's I think that's all I have for the uh the sort of also Rans and, and again, the, the stems, you know, actually kind of matriculated out of that era, right. Where that was a technology that again, poorly executed with the Gervin, um, you know, relatively well with the all sup and now, you know, still around for gravel. So that was one where I sort of think like, yeah, that, you know, they had the right idea there. And, um, you know, just the initial initial attempts at it were not necessarily stellar, but the bar and hubs and the tension disc, you know, for what it was, um, those, uh, <laughs> I think, saw their saw their day in the sun. It, well, the, the the bar never did, and uh, I think people quickly yeah. realized that was not the way to go about it. Um,
1: yeah, there were definitely some unsung heroes of the of the suspension movement, where you know they're they, were, they were grasping to that that cross country mindset, where it was like we want to make you know we want to give compliance, but allow for um, you know lightweight and and allow for the kind of the ability to have you know a really solid um, input when it comes to, to steering ability, and I think that was another thing that people thought that they were going to lose is that razor sharp steering accuracy because those those rigid forks, I mean they they went where you pointed them, and you know you you had Merlin developing a truss fork that you know to, to different degrees of success. Uh, I think that was an attempt at you know offering some compliance where you still had that you know steering ability um, mm-hmm. there were there were other companies that were messing around with titanium, which is known to be a really compliant metal um, so that it was basically it wasn't a suspension fork, so to speak, but it was it was you know a goal it was a way to get into suspension without you know alleviating people's fears of what that was gonna do to the front end of their bike, which was people thought it was just gonna make it. You know unridable you know, and that's just you know it, it wasn't it wasn't true and in a lot of those you know a lot of those forks were really 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 good forks you know in terms of you know the amount of technology and the amount of engineering that went into making them what they were, especially those bradbury forks i mean in all you know in all in all when when you when you break it down, the rock shock was probably a, a better fork for what it was trying to do, but those Bradbury forks were really, really, you know, engineering marvels of what they, what they were able to do with some guy in his garage. And, and that, that Manitou line continued for a long time. I mean, you you can, you know, you can still go buy a Manitou and you can still go buy a shock. So that's saying something. Well, and and the
0: technology ended up um, kind of crossing over, right? So Manitou started with with right. elastomer and all the way through the, you know, all the Bradbury forks, Manitou 1, Manitou 2, 3 and 4. It wasn't until the the EFC, which, you know, and, and I know we spout this stuff off, but, you know, those early forks were um, sort of the, their, tra- their trademark was CNC, right? They were all... Um, machined out of aluminum so they all had that they all had looked similar from a distance right different colors and things like that and some some minor technology changes but they all were machined and those that that during that era of cnc and anodizing that those forks yeah. were big and they essentially had a you know a version of an elastomer stack the efc finally at the end had a, an oil damper in it um, so
1: give a timeline of of when of when we saw this
0: yeah, so so Doug first started making his forks, I think his earliest prototypes would have been sometime in 89, where I think he may have made, you know, the first or second fork. And then in 90, um, you know, both Tomac and Julie had prototype pre-answer Bradbury forks, which, you know, we won't get into the details, but they were all forks that Doug made by hand virtually. right. And then um, in 91, his forks kind of started hitting the stride and he made – Um, I I don't know how many, but, you know, probably not quite a thousand forks, but maybe close to a thousand forks. You know, he actually hired some folks to do that. And then by 92, he licensed that technology to answer and answer famously made the, the Manitou one as we call it, which was a gray anodized fork. And essentially it was the same as a Bradbury, but just kind of beefed up. Um, and then, uh, what late 92, early 93, they quickly revved that with the Manitou two, which, um, had a slightly revised elastomer stack and then an external preload adjuster down at the bottom of the fork.
1: And it had a, it had a top and bottom out bumper. Am I right? That'd yeah. Manitude. The other
0: forks had them, but, um, oh. but they were, but they were like, you know, the, the thickness of a button, <laughs> um, where this fork actually, you know, was like, you know, the, the, yeah, you're right. The rebound bumper was maybe like as big as your thumb. um, and then the three and four, which were really the same exact fork. I don't know why they, I mean, there's a different, literally, like all they did was change the three to a four. I've never known there to be any difference.
1: And the only but difference they, was was the uh, the color of the stanchions.
0: Yeah, yeah. They had cool anodized graphics
1: and, and those forks. Well, no, um, like the, the, the Manitou 3 had black stanchions and the Manitou 4 had gold stanchions.
0: Oh, you're right. So they went from, yeah, to Teflon, right? Yeah. And, and let you're me tell right. you.
1: That anodizing is on stiction. there. Really hu- it's it's on there really hard.
0: <laughs> yeah. So stiction yeah. was a really big thing with these forks early on, where like to actually break. Um, I think this was a big problem with the Rock Shock, where you know the, the Manitou, because again it didn't have very tight seals, would would hit all the little bumps. But um, over time, dirt and stuff would get into your um, into your lowers, and the early forks were chromed, right? I mean, like yeah. the, the cheapest forks on the market today have chrome stanchions. Yeah. Um, and so the forks would stick. Um, and I think they were, they were trying all the different coatings and I don't remember what the black coating was, but I think wasn't the gold. Coating I don't, I don't, long? I don't
1: think there was a coating on the Manitou three. I think that was one of the problems that not only was there a sticking issue with the Manitou three, the, the anodizing would wear away, yeah. you know, oh, over not a very can. long period of time. If you, if you rode on like a couple mu- muddy rides, you'd start yep. to see wearing on the inside of your fork legs, you know, yeah. it'd be black to silver. Just from you know the, the it wearing against the bushing, so I think the Manitou Four had this very, you know, t- you know, an intense anodizing process where not only were the fork legs anodized, but they had this coating on them. That yeah, I it's like the early <laughs> Kashima. I, I guess yeah, it's the same color. So,
0: but yeah, um, yeah there's that, there's literally yeah.
1: no difference between a, a four and a three um, in terms of how it functions. Other than and the, so that was what
0: like ninety
1: four 95 three came out you know it, i remember reading a magazine 94 where they compared like the sl like the mag 21 sl tie to like the man two three so i think yeah i think four you know four or five you saw the man two four
0: yeah yep um and yeah, those the, the big change there from the earlier forks to the three four EFC was that as Mike talked about earlier, the elastomers came in from the top and and switching them out was really easy. That that was a big deal. Um, yeah, and then the EFC had the damper. But what I was get, what I was getting at initially is so, so you know the Manitou fork was very simple with the elastomers, right? It was lighter also. Um, the, the numbers I'm pulling up, there was something around like seventeen hundred grams. Yeah,
1: um,
0: so it was significantly lighter than the shock. but elastomers then made its way into into Shock, right? So RockShox started offering the Quadra Fork, which was the well, low end.
1: Yeah, I mean, so in 90... Ooh, I'm, you know, i lose this in a trivia challenge, but I, I think it was 94 where you fought, saw the first Judy. Which right. is I mean, that, when everyone, I mean, the masses, if you talk to, to 80% of the people out there, you know, what your first, you know, foray into mountain bike suspension was, it was a Rock Shock's Judy. It was a elastomer-sprung, oil damped fork. I mean very, very simple. But it was basically the best of both worlds, right? You had a spring that you could adjust externally. Um you know, you could adjust the ride quality, you could you could preload it. Um but you also had the oil damping of a cartridge. You know, a little yep. bit oil cartridge inside the lower of the fork leg. So it was kinda like, you know, okay you got the you know you get a it's basically a hybrid between the Manitou and a rock shock.
0: Yeah. So, so it's interesting how that technology kind of went, went both ways, right? The, the fork that started out as the sort of more advanced, uh, you know, the rock shock ended up taking technology from Manitou and putting it into theirs versus oh. meanwhile, Manitou took their technology. So, yeah. um, so let's see where we're getting close to probably wanting to wrap this episode up. Um, I think there's a ton more to talk about suspension. Um, I think we covered what all the, all the, the
1: funky, the funky, uh, funky has And uh, yeah, I mean, we can well, get into like the Gervin vector and all that stuff, but I mean, ultimately it just all falls into the category of, you know, we tried it, you know, it, it, it worked for certain applications, maybe not for, for most. Yeah.
0: And uh, yeah. you were talking about compliance. The other fork I remember, um, and I actually have one of these here. It's another one of these segmented forks where again, you've got the single crown with, with two lower legs and a company called IRD, which is fabulous. And they made a lot of, wonderful products. Forks were not one of them, but they made a fork with relatively thin <laughs> wall titanium lowers, very light, you know, cool fork, you know, re- really styling on a vintage build. But the whole idea is that not only the legs, but the crown itself had lateral compliance. So, this is fore and aft compliance. There's no vertical compression. And and that was the, you know, when you read some of the old brochures and some of the handwritten notes that, that Rod Moses put out, you know, the fork would just sort of deflect, um, would, would, yeah, <laughs> and it is the most, and again, I'm a bigger guy, but it is the most unsettling feeling. It's scary. It, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's just yeah. one of those things where they, they actually intended it to act as suspension. And then when actually put to the test, oh man, it just, <laughs> It just did not work, and it just wandered. I mean, the just place. think
1: about looking down in a in a in a washboard section on a dirt road and watching your front wheel move not only fore and aft <laughs> but side to side, like three four <laughs> inches. Under you know, and, and and then you hit the brake. Imagine what like hard braking would do to that. I mean. Oh, it's just just scary stuff. Yeah, so I hope I mean uh, yeah, as we move
0: down and sort of find our way through this podcast, I hope what we, you know, we try to to give you listeners an idea of is all, all the all the amazing things that happened during those times because there's so many just wonderful stories and, and, and you, know, p- you know, inflection points in the development of the mountain bike, the sport, the trails, the people that did all this, um, and, and try to keep it in context with, with the times and, you know, what it was like to ride these bikes. Cause Mike and I still ride these bikes pretty regularly. Um, I only recently actually started getting out on, on modern bikes. I mean, I, and I talked about this in the other episode, um, my newest bike was a '97, up until just uh, a few months ago, and so I'm kind of exploring all of this you know, amazing things for the first time. And um, I try to keep, you know, these kind of conversations in, the, in that perspective as to not talk about, oh, I'm comparing this to a modern bike, like like Mike said. So we'll try to, you know, talk about those things and give you an idea because not everyone has the chance to. You know, pull some of these things out and actually play with them and see what it's like, or, or has the, <laughs> the the courage to, to actually go test some of this stuff, um, and and talk about some of the you know the, the highlights um, and the, and some of the uh, you know the, the the missteps. So so, Mike, are you are you ready to maybe give your top three um, you know best suspension? Developments or best suspension products from the 80s and 90s do you want to take a stab
1: well i, I think any conversation about suspension from the from the late 80s early 90s is it's, it'd be unfair to give you know anybody but paul turner and his rock shocks you know the, the the top the top step i mean what what they were able to do um it really it changed it changed the industry um but, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, I think my, my number one, would obviously be the Rock Shocks um, and, and my number two would obviously be Manitou. So, you know, I'm, I'm stealing from, you know, your top three, but, you know, that's, a, it's kind of, you know, that's, that's, you know, those, those two engineers deserve a ton of credit for what they were able to do. Uh, and, you know, with, with very little, I mean, you didn't have, uh. 20 years of history behind a sport or a product to help develop, you know, this, you know, this new, this new product. It was, it was basically like, we're figuring it out on the fly in real time. And, you know, a, a, someone, you know, an industry friend of mine who was there at the time, you know, basically said it to me the best that it possibly could be said, like, when he said, "You know, by putting these forks on these bikes at the speeds they were going, we could have killed them," <laughs> and it's it's very true. I mean, these people were worth millions. I mean, this is not a time where there was very there was a you know there was no money. It was it was a very lucrative time um, for mountain biking. People were being paid a lot of money to ride mountain bikes and to race mountain bikes, and it was a it was a burgeoning industry. And and by by risking. Uh, their financial livelihoods on these products took a lot of took a lot of balls, and I have a lot of respect for that. So, yeah, Paul Turner and, and Doug Bradbury, you know those guys. You know, it was it was amazing what they did. Right on, right on. Yeah, I, I think you know this 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 one we won't have a ton of
0: contention. I, you know, I think for me the the one and two were slightly flipped, and and I, I have to admit that the the technology that went into the Rock Shock far Exceeded what went into the Manitou, but you know, back then I, I actually had a had a Manitou and and I chose it over the shock. and and to this day I still don't have and I, I've had bikes with a with an RS one on it and um and we will get into the the development of the Mag Series forks, but. I did not like the the rock shock the way it performed actually. I, I sort of I thought it was slow and, and I, I messed around with it a little bit. Um, and again, it's it, maybe I maybe I still didn't do a good job of it. but I felt though the Manitou kind of gave you performance with just such simplicity that you know back then I didn't know what I was doing that you know any any idiot could have gotten it working because you didn't have these tools like bike shops didn't know how to tune.
1: Forks. Yeah, they knew uh, as much as you did.
0: Yeah, which which was nothing. You didn't have the shock shockwiz and you know guys who would tell you how to adjust your sag, and there was no compression and rebound damping. So although that the technology in the RockShox was was really, I mean, the, the guy just went from zero to a hundred and made you know an amazing a- attempt at, at what was the ultimate design today. But he was just just hamstrung by not having the technology. Whereas Doug said. I'm going to make something that works. And yeah, it's not that good. And if the temperature drops too much, you, your travel goes away. Like, cause the fork didn't work when it was cold, right? Cause elastomers got harder. Um, mm-hmm. but in its simplicity, it worked. And, 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 it was also lighter, which, you know, whatever. Um, no, and, and going yeah. back that, you know, that's the fork that I had. And that's still the fork that I, on the few bikes that I run from that era, I, I choose a Manitou. Um, and, and, you know, I have to, I have to hand it to the, to the Scott Unishock, because as shitty of a fork as it was, it was so <laughs> damn cheap that it was so easy to get one. And again, it was very simple, right? That the thing had nothing to it, and that's the that was my first suspension fork. Was a Unishock that I bought secondhand for I don't know hundred some dollars before I could actually save up to get a Manitou. So I'll, I'll throw it in there as, as a notable mention and. Uh, but, yeah, I'd say, you know, for me, it, it was always the Manitou because just it worked and it was so simple. Um, and the, the rock shock, you know, it, it just seemed like, you know, it, it just needed a little more, uh, you know, it needed a little more time uh, until it until it got good. And then with the mag, it kind of got there a little bit. So so that's my bit. All right. Well, uh, so this was awesome. Um, yeah. I felt like we, we dug into, into suspension. There's still a ton more to talk about of the different – types of forks and you know companies like marzocchi and white brothers and i mean it went from you know from nothing to two to 20 in in a matter of three years and i think we could definitely talk about that some more but um so listeners i you know i hope you hope you guys like this um 'll we'll, uh, we'll throw a couple of photos of a, a few of these different forks um, in in my um, Instagram feed um, and in the, in the mountain bike radio Instagram feed so when this episode drops, you can check them out and sort of see what we're talking about and uh, um, you know kind of get a sense of it and uh, yeah we may stick with suspension for another episode. I think there's still a ton more to unpack. Um, or get into some of the other uh, crazy technologies that uh, that were developed in the in the early eighties and nineties that you know really made the bikes we have today possible. So yeah, Mike, thanks yeah. for joining. I uh, I appreciate uh, kicking this stuff around with you. It's always it's always fun to fun to catch up and uh, uh, look forward to to the next ones. Any uh, any parting words?
1: No, man, that is really really fun talking about all that stuff. Um, there's a lot more to talk about, especially when it comes to you know vintage full suspension designs oh, yeah. uh, i'm really ex- i'm really excited to get into bikes like the mountain cycle san andreas which was a huge you know hero interest of, of mine when i was you know 14 years old but um yeah no we're gonna we're gonna keep this rolling hopefully and have a lot a lot of fun to talk about and i hope you guys enjoy it all right all right talk to you guys next time all right take care